He said, where are you? And we were talking. He goes, you know, you got some twang to you. Where are you from? I said, Texas. He said, you grow up squirrel hunting? I said, yes, sir. He said, them the best hunters I ever met in my life on this mountain where East Texas and South Louisiana boys grew up squirrel hunting. They're just better woodsmen. So I attribute a lot of my hunting success to being coming from that background, like you were talking about, Danny. It just makes you focus on your shooting and it focus on your stalking. And it just, it helps you be a better woodsman. everybody welcome to the hoyt bow hunting podcast i'm your host danny ferris with my sidekick evan williams today we've got a buddy on who we've been waiting a long time for this podcast haven't we evan yes we have mark smith the muley slayer muley slayer one on instagram he's here with us mark is kind of more like family than uh just a hunting buddy i mean he's he has he i have known mark since uh, 2003, huh, Mark? Yep. Something yeah. like that. 20, 21 like years. 20 a year years, after, buddy. A year after I first started in the industry and me and you, I, I still remember the first time I met you. We were at that, uh, at that racetrack. PPIR. And yeah. PPIR. That's exactly where Mark's we feet. were. And you, I was thinking about yeah, that today. Yeah. Were you really? Yeah. I was thinking, I thought that might come up. When did I, I remember the second I met you, you walked up, we're flipping through my photo albums and you're like, Man, you're a committed bow hunter. <laughs> like, yeah. He goes, he goes, I love hunting, but I don't think I'm that committed yet. And then, but I work at a bow hunting magazine. I'm like, well, man, you're the kind of guy I want to talk to. So we, we hit it off immediately. We started, we, I think we went antelope hunting that year together with our first hunt together. And then from there we were just like brothers. So, yeah. Dude, I got to say like the, that first day that I met Mark, he had this fancy, I don't remember whether it was mossy oak or real tree, but he had this fancy like mossy oak or real tree i think it was a short sleeve like button-up shirt and some cargo shorts on and it, it, like it, dude it was it was a fa- it was a pretty fancy bow hunter r- setup for you know <laughs> summer attire at the time it was it was pretty funny i was like god dang he is over the top and he man he he was you taught me a lot back then you taught me yeah. a lot you were i was a pretty good hunter i wasn't a very good archer and you you straightened me out on a bunch of things that i had going on at the time that was long time yeah. ago and yeah, then was, that first uh, day, go ahead that that first antelope hunt that we went on, uh, I forget. I think my boys were in Boy Scouts or something like that. And we went out to this place and we had two different blinds set up that day. And and you were, man, we got in there before, before daylight. And halfway through the day, I had to get out and I had to go. We, it was a Pinewood Derby. For the boys, yeah. for the Boy Scouts yeah. and or the Cub Scouts. They were just little Cub Scouts at the time. And I had to go to that Pinewood Derby and I was trying to get done with it as fast as I could so I could get back out there to the blind. And I came back, got in the blind. You stayed there the entire day. I think you were in that thing like 14 hours or something yeah, like that. 13, 13 hours. Yeah. Right there at the end <laughs> of the day, right, right at the end, you had a big buck come in and you smashed him. Yeah. And we seen them the night before we were hunting that Friday afternoon and we saw them. We were leaving the ranch right at dark. Remember a whole pile ran off that pond. So we went over there and I said, Hey, I'm going to bring that, that Ameristep 
that they, we had from the magazine. I said, I'm going to bring that over. So we set it up at like that morning or something in the dark, or it was the night we left. Either way, it was set up, ready to go. And I got in it before daylight. I got in it at 6 a.m. And yeah, at 7 p.m., yeah. that buck and 12 does came in. And um, I shot him, you know, like 40 yards. I remember I shot him. Uh, I was so excited. He came in, I shot him, and my arrow was stuck in the top of the man's water trough in the lip of that steel water trough. Oh, <laughs> so I had to get my Leatherman out and kind of, yeah, it's just the lip, though. It didn't poke a hole in it where it leaked, but I was like, dang, man, an inch lower, I'd have been in trouble. But yeah, but that, uh, yeah, shot him. And it, that, uh, that particular dude was not one that we wanted to pop his water tank either. No, no, he was a no. cool guy, though. Yeah. No. No, he was, he, he, it wouldn't have been good, but you know, what's funny then very next year, I think it was 2004. I went to that water tank that you were, that you were sitting and I sat there all day, nothing like two days in a row, nothing happened. Nothing came in. They just weren't hitting it very consistently. And at the end of that second day, you know, dark to dark sets right at the end of it. I decided, okay, I don't see anything on the horizon in front of me. And if you remember, right, there was a little hill behind where we put the grind blind and you can see over that hill. And I was like, I'm going to crawl out of this blind and I'm going to creep up over that hill and I'm just going to peek. And if I see any white dots out there, I'll just get back in the blind real quick, you know? And if not, I'm going to head out and I'm going to find one to stalk because I've been here for two days and there hadn't been a single thing show up. And I go creeping up over that hill. And as I'm doing, I'm going up a cow trail, one of those cow trails that comes into the water. And I'm, you know, my, my eyes are just peeled on the horizon the entire time. And I stepped down with my left foot and it was like, I stepped on a garden hose that, that moved. And yeah. dude, when that snake hit the rattles, I, levitated like what's his name in the matrix levitated off of that snake man it took five years off my life dude yeah it was that was you know growing up in west texas where i was raised you were taught you know every time you went out watch out for snakes they were the boogeyman and i'll never forget that i was like this is bs dude mark comes out here sits here one day shoots a big old buck the year before <laughs> I've come and pounded the heck out of this thing. And what do I get? I step on a damn rattlesnake. I'm lucky. Yeah. I didn't get bit. Yeah. Real lucky. lucky. Cause I, you, yeah, I think <laughs> you even took a picture back then you were carrying a digital, not a yeah, digital camera, not a, we didn't even have cell phones in. You had a camera and you took it was, a picture. It was my a, first digital camera. It was a Canon pro one. Yeah. Is what mm-hmm. it was. Yep. Yep. I think you had a lot of, I think you were trying to, uh, that's, isn't that the same year you stuck the knife deep into your knee socket to clean a bear for your dad? So I'm like, man, this guy, I don't want out with this guy. He steps on rattlesnakes, <laughs> stabbed himself in the kneecap with a knife. He is Dude, just was, prone I, to it. I was, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm was, surprised we haven't like started calling you Murphy. It was the year, oh, it, was a, it was the same, like you stepped on a rattlesnake and then you, your dad kills this massive bear up in Colorado backcountry, And then you're all excited cleaning it for him. And you, like that was within a quarter inch of catastrophe. I know it was bad. It, so it bad was, news. it was bad. Yeah. I, yeah. we were, we were packed in. I'd already killed a bull and there was a big bull that was in this basin we were in and we'd seen him several times. And I was anxious to get dad on that bull. Well, he, he ends up, he, that was back in the days where we had over the counter bear tags yeah. in 
and I guess there still are in some units in Colorado, but not that one anymore. But he, he had a bear tag in his pocket just in case and came across this big bear, shot him. And I was excited that he shot him. But at the same time, I was like, OK, we need to get this bear taken care of off the mountain and back up here so that we can get you on this bull like muy pronto. So, yeah, I was in a I was in a hurry while I was skinning yeah. that dang thing. And I jammed that knife. It, just got into a rough patch, pulled it myself, jammed it right into my knee and ended up limping the four or five miles off of that mountain and had surgery on my knee the next day. It was, yeah. it was that deep into the middle of my knee. It was a bad deal, man. I remember, like you said, if it was just a few inches up higher, it was bad juju. Yeah. You know, sure. got to go slow. Got to be careful. <laughs> so man, um, you know, you are, you're known as a mule slayer. You have been a mule deer hunter to the core ever since I've ever known you. Um, but how many years have you been living down in Texas now? I'm originally from Texas. I left Texas in 94 and I came back to Texas in 2013. So since for 10 years, I've been back in Texas. 10 years. And we're, are you in the same area where you were from? I was, born in Long, I was born in Longview, Northeast Texas, which is where I hunt now with family, but I live in the mm -hmm. Dallas area and that's where I always wanted to live. So when you're a little kid growing up in East Texas, Dallas is like the crystal palace on the hill, it had the Dallas Cowboys, had the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, and it had six flags and had everything you want when you're little. All right. Roger Staubach days, you know, number 12. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Growing yeah. up in East Texas, looking a hundred miles down I-20, Dallas was that crystal palace on the hill that I always wanted to call home. And, um, yeah. I finally did in 2013, but I, I, from, from, I live, I grew, I was born there, but I kind of grew up in my teen years in the Houston area, North of Houston spring area. And then I took a job transfer in 20 or er, 1994. I took a new job out in El Paso, Texas, lived there for one year and said, man, I can't live here. There's I no forgot that. And there I went to New I... Mexico, lived in New Mexico for five years. And that's where I turned on the jets as a, I, it was closer when I lived in El Paso that year is what started my passion with mule deer. I wanted to go hunting. And back then growing up in Texas as a kid, you, you got your bow out like at the end of dove season in September, knocked the dust off of it, sighted your 10 and 20 yard pins in, and then you deer hunted October 1st to Halloween. And then that thing went back in the case until next September, because then you got your 25 out six out and you hunted deer with your rifle, like any <laughs> self-respecting yeah. Texan and you cut the deer yeah. all November, December with your rifle. Well, when I moved to El Paso, it changed my life um, for the, like the worst year of my life for a place I hated to live was one of the best years of my life. I spent this one year, just every second with my wife and no hunting or fishing. So that fall I wanted to go hunting and it was closer to go into New Mexico and go hunting than it was to go anywhere further East into Texas to go hunting. And so mm -hmm. the most affordable thing I could find, I got the regs at a gas station or a grocery store or something. One day I was on a service call in silver city. I got some regs and went up, talked to a taxidermist. And uh, I just threw a dart at the back of the catalog. It had all the outfitters listed on it. And I said, Hey, I, I want to go deer hunting. This guy, I'll never forget him. Hubert Tomlin with, uh, Lonesome Dove Outfitters. Uh, he, yeah. he charged just $150 a day. He got me green as gourds. 
We should have just wrote him a check and stayed in El Paso. But $150 a day fed us canned beans and weenies and drove us around in a truck. And we rode hunted deer for two days in the Gila National Forest and saw one forked horn. (laughs) And then I said, well, hell, I can do this myself. And ironically, the next year I moved to the Four Corners. And and that's where I met Jeremy Duggar, which has become one of my very best He's as close to me as you are. He's one of my very best friends, like family. He was the shop. Yeah. He worked at an archery shop. Now he's the shop owner of Expert Archery. They're a huge Hoyt dealer. And he signed me on as a Hoyt co-op staff shooter for his shop because I was winning 3D shoots locally and I was killing game every time I got a tag. And, uh, and so I got to meet him and he's a mule deer guru. And so his passion for mule deer kind of spilled over to me. Had he been an elk guy, I probably would be an elk guy today, but he was mm-hmm. a mule deer yeah. guy. And he's a massive giant mule deer killer. And so I was raised by one of the best and he's a year younger than me, but he is my guru. And, and he taught me mule deer hunting and how to, and we were hunting Navajo bucks and Colorado bucks and Utah and Arizona. And we, we lived in the four corners. So we'd have five mule deer tag. And so that's where my passion for mule deer came was the resource from where I lived, the guy that got me into it, the guy that signed me on with Hoyt for the first time. And that's where I started. And that's where my passion for mule deer started. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I, I completely forgot about that stint that you did in El Paso. My, that's where I'm from. That's yeah. I was there till I was 12 years old and down there just east of El Paso and some of those mountains and, and then in the Guadalupe Mountains and in the southern part of the Gila, that those are the first places that I ever went hunting as a kid, you know, and then we moved up to, you know, Colorado Springs when I was 12 years old. Um, But yeah, that, that move that you made, you know, El Paso, it's funny because I remember my dad, you know, some of the earliest deer that I remember him bringing in were from right around El Paso, like Mount Franklin right there. Yeah. Yeah. Right on the mountain in town. Yeah. Back when you could hunt it. Yep. He was rifle hunting on that thing. And that is a, that mountain is, is a bear. Like mm-hmm. everything pokes you, everything sticks you. It's, it's just nasty, you know? Yeah. Um, Isn't that just Texas in general though? Pretty yeah, much. Well, West Texas, West Texas is different than, you know, when people like that audad hunt that I just came back from in the Davis mountains, that is, uh, that is not what you're imagining when most people think of Texas, mm-hmm. you know, that's just, treacherous up and down and what was crazy was you know i remember there there was a fair number of muleys around when i was a when i was a kid in that part of texas but dude like down there i I was shocked by how many muleys we saw you know there there was a bunch while we were all dad hunting down there but moving up there to the four corners region man you kind of moved right into the heart of some of the yeah oh the mecca the Mm -hmm. mecca for mule deer for sure And you started shooting tournament archery at the same time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jeremy, I was going around shooting local shoots. Well, funny thing, my wife, she was, she walked into the store with me. Oh, it was my first, my first year in four corners. And I had to go, I went, Jeremy was working at Zia sporting goods then. And I had to go down to Zia and buy a new dozen arrows about every other weekend because I was flinging my thunderheads and 2314 aluminums at every mule deer I saw. And I didn't have a range finder. <laughs> I was using a sight master and I was trying to dial it and shoot oh. them. And that was it. Nice. I went through two dozen arrows that year before I killed my first mule deer and I killed a forked horn. And ironically, I killed him out of a tree stand. I put a tree, I put a screwed a board up in his, I kept seeing these deer come off of private onto public and they had to go through this little tunnel to go like across the highway and to go into (laughs) this, these rim rocks to go bed. So I was like, man, I'm just going to 
I don't know what to do. I'm tired of going through air. I didn't have any money to be buying any more arrows and broadheads. So I got up in a tree <laughs> and um, one of the deer winded me as they were a big four point was leading them. And they come across the highway that morning, ruins road, come up that Canyon. And uh, I got drew back and the big one smelled me and whirled and they all kind of bounced uphill away from me. And the last one was a real tall fork and horn and he bounced through the gap. And I did the whole, I just, I was shooting an 80 pound bow back then with 24 13s with hundred grain thunderheads. And I drew back and I put that sight on him and I put it out about 10 feet in front of him and just let it rip. It was, he was bouncing. He was starting. I shot my first mule deer yeah. running at 35 yards and killed him. Oh. And I just felt like Chuck Adams, thing, man. I was like, Oh my <laughs> gosh, man. I, I am, I am Jim Doherty. Look out here. I, I am the man. Now, man. And so I, I got him and, and then it's just like, it was, I can smell, I can smell the sage and the pinyon and the, the sand, like everything about that is just ingrained in my mind because it, I'd worked, I'd never worked so hard in my life to actually kill something. And I killed that on public land and just made it happen. And it, that changed me. And so after that, and, and I'd moved to there, I'd moved to the four corners and I went in and met Jeremy and I said, Hey, I'm new. And Jeremy being a nice guy, he sent me to the most generic place you send a new local to go hunting. All right. This place called Ruined Road. It's this little canyon of BLM land up this road. And it'd be like sending people up Rampart. Uh, you, oh, I got yeah. an elk tag. I just go up the Rampart. Oh, yeah. You, yeah. One in a billion chance you're going to even see anything. <laughs> yeah. and, you, and so Jeremy's like, just go to, well, I come back. And I got this buck in the back of my truck. And I, I go, thanks for sending me, man. I finally got him. He's like, holy crap, you got one. Well, that made him set up, pay attention to me because he saw, he knew that wasn't going to come easy. And after that, yeah. he's like, hey, you're an all right guy. I'm going to take you under my wing and show you some good stuff. And he did. He showed me heaven on earth. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then the next spring, he signed me on um, as a co-op shooter through Hoyt, where I got my bow at a discount. And that was my first Hoyt, 98. I got a Hoyt Power Tech in that illusion camos it was like mm -hmm. one of the, with a built-in overdraw is awesome man me and him set those things yeah. up and 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 that bow man i just i thought i had arrived i mean i had my name on my shirt and uh, they they bought me these hoyt shirts off the website you know like these henleys and went it had the hoyt logo and they could put my name on it and i think it said right. hunting advisory staff they had embroidered on there and i thought man I'd kill like three deer with a bow, but I was a hunting advisor. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and, and they, they, uh, but man, I took it very serious. in that fall as a sponsored shooter, I killed four mule deer bucks in four different States and my first archery elk. So they put me on the newspaper on the, the cover of the outdoor section of the Farmington newspaper said three busy weeks, local man racks up impressive numbers. And, and there's a picture of me with a bull. And then there's four pictures of me with mule deer. And I thought, man, this is, this bow hunting thing is for me, man. I, it just fits, you know, and now there's guys out there like Omni Warner and the Warner family. They all still live there in four corners and they still have those newspaper clippings in their, in their photo albums. And they remember that stuff. Right. And it, and me being this one guy starting right there kind of inspired a whole community. Now, some of the best shooters in the nation man, come out of the four corners, New Mexico, a place you would never like the whole this whole revolution started right in Jimmy's shop and it, or in Jeremy's shop. And it started with me and Jimmy Hambrick. Jimmy Hambrick was the target guy and I was the hunting guy, but um, kind of off topic, but that is my roots. And it's something I'm very, very proud of, but that's my well, roots of Hoyt start right at that shop, this little shop in four corners, New Mexico. That is like 
one of the largest, you know, it's a huge dealer for Hoyt and, and, and a lot of rich Hoyt history comes out of that region because of all of that. Well, for any of you young guys out there that are listening, there is a lesson to be learned here. And that is, I mean, what did it mean to your development to, to meet a mentor like Jeremy? Yeah. Just, I mean, it, it, it changed your whole course. It, my whole course in life from, from, from yeah. a man, as a man, I mean, he's one of the best men I know. And he just, it, it just, I, my, I don't know where my life would be without that guy. And to be honest with you, I don't know. It just is amazing. Well, you, and and it just, you know, I, I got out of the military in 97 and, you know, of course I'd been bow hunting since I was, was old enough to go here in Colorado prior to that, but I wasn't a very good archer. And at the time when you went into pro shops, man, it, it was like, it was really weird, especially with you remember golden Eagle here in, uh, here in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. So you'd go in there. That old boy would just look at you over there and just go right back to what he was doing. And it was real clicky. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And as a young guy, you didn't, you, you, you didn't want to go in there and, you know, ask for a bunch of help and things like that. But I didn't find that mentor until like, you know, freaking 2000. You know, I didn't start becoming a better archer and God, looking back at the, at the number of opportunities that I let slip in the nineties, because I was not a very good archer. I, I, it just kills me. And if, if I'd have made the effort to find somebody and really, and really learn what I was doing at that time, um, I I just feel like I would have been launched onto a much better course 10 years earlier. You know yeah, what I mean? For sure. And that's, that's exactly Absolutely. what Jeremy did for you. Mm-hmm. That's exa- exactly what Jeremy did for you. So you, yep. you, you started really seriously hunting there in the, in the nineties and you, you know, all through the early two thousands, you were, you were hunting a ton, you know, around here yeah. and, and you were consistent. One of the best hunt, bow hunters that I knew. And so, uh, you know, one of my big questions for you is your bow hunting has changed a lot since you moved locations. You don't have the opportunities to just jump out the back, the back door, so to speak, like you did when you were up here. But you you do just for other species. You're doing a lot of hog hunting, doing a lot of uh, of whitetail hunting down there. But you're continuing to get out on a couple of mule deer hunts every year and continuing to do well. So the main thing that I wanted to know is how have some of the changes that you've gone through moving down to that part of Texas helped to make you a better mule deer hunter? That's a good, that's an excellent question. A good topic. And it's been one that I, I talk about a lot in my seminars there at the Western hunt expo in Salt Lake every year. And I think it rubs some of the local Utah's they love Utah is one of those States that love me and they love to have me. And some of the locals are like, how does this guy come from Texas and kill a buck up on the Wasatch every single year? And I've been hunting it for five years and I can't get one killed. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. the thing is, I keep going back. And, and so for me, I was a very um, exploratory. I, I, I did all of my exploring and scouting and all this research before there was, before there was ever, um, you know, cyber scouting. I was doing it with Pope and Young books, maps, talking to people. 
like just getting out and actually going and talking to somebody at an art at an archery shop or a shoot or a taxidermy shop and just, just you know asking lots of questions and I never wanted to be that guy with a notepad writing it down. I had like a photogenic memory, so I would just remember keywords. When I get someone talking about hunting, I would remember the name of a canyon, and then I'd, as soon as I could get back to my truck, I'd go write it down, and then I'd go home and get a map and find that canyon, and then I would go scout it in the off season, and I did that for years, and um, so I laid down a lot of groundwork when I lived out west in New Mexico and Colorado, and I visited Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and the Navajo, and I hunted so much back then and traveled and scouted so much that back then I built up this great network, this bank of areas I always either loved or wanted to try. And as, and after I moved to Texas, I'm just depending on social networking. Mm -hmm. Um, that has been huge for me, uh, using Instagram, Facebook, just meeting people, talking to them, asking the right questions, and then just being bold enough to ask the blunt questions about areas and mm-hmm. I'll tell guys, hey, I've actually looked at people's photos after looking at aerial maps and I've called them and or talked to them on Instagram and said, I'm asking you specifically, do you hunt this rock on this ridge? Because that's what it looks like on Google Earth. And I want to go there. But if that's your honey hole, I won't go there. Just tell me yes or no. And I have had a couple of guys say, absolutely, that's where I kill my bucks. I'll never go there. Okay, thank you. But I think I found your spot just by looking at pictures. And out of respect, I don't go there. I just go somewhere else. But if they're like, no, you're close, uh, or this or that or the other, I'm going to go try it. And sometimes I bump into guys I've met or talked to, and sometimes I don't. But I'm actually going to a spot exactly like that this year in Utah. What I should draw. Mm -hmm. I think I have like 80% chance of drawing with no points because I used five general points last year to go hunt with my buddies down, down in Utah. So I'm out of general points. Mm-hmm. But I've been doing some research and I think I know where some really big bucks are. <laughs> That's mm. some really high profile guys don't want me to know about, but I think I found them and I'm pretty excited about it. So that's how I've gone back to areas I've always hunted or areas that I knew about. Cause I built such a bank in my twenties, thirties and forties that now in my fifties and sixties, as long as I can get tags, I'm 52 now. And so as long as I can get tags for these areas, I'll just continue to go hunt familiar spots. Uh, nothing. I used to get great pride out of going to a new area and finding a deer and killing it there in a new spot. Right now it stresses me out to have to hunt somewhere (laughs) unfamiliar to the point. I don't even want to go hunting. Like I'll lay in bed, toss and turn for weeks, coming up to a hunt. If I know I'm going somewhere I've never been before, i.e. this past year, knowing all of my friends and their great success in this unit they go to, it was a first time for me. And the, I don't, it's not a fear of failure. Just a, I like to wake up, and know exactly when I go here in glass, if they're not there, they're there. If they're not there, they're there. And then if I see them here, I know what to do. If I see them there, I know what to do. Cause I have all this history. When you go you're, somewhere you're new, you don't have any of that history. And, it, and, yeah. and yeah. And you just, I just stress out, man. Cause I, I plan my work and I work my plan and everything I do in life. And when you don't know an area, it can be, it needs, it just needs to be fun. I mean, it needs to just be a fun time, but man, I like success. And, and, uh, <laughs> so I stress out on new spots, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident about my, uh, some of my choices coming into 2023, August, September, 2023. And, and I've got the elk bug again too. So I got some elk hunts on the horizon of, this year. Of course, cool. we've all, we've all got guys from East of here that are wanting to come out West and, and hunt. So we get a lot of guys that ask us lots of questions, you know, all three mm-hmm. of us. 
And one thing that I consistently tell them is, you know, especially if it's somebody that's already been out here a couple of times, I would rather have an average unit that I know well than a great unit that I don't know at all. And mm-hmm. especially if you're mm-hmm. my, if you're, if you're, if you're getting that tag in a great unit and you're going to be able to hunt it once, and then you're going to wait another five to 10 years or whatever it is, yeah. that, that is a terrible situation to me. Yep. I personally, and I, I've done that, you know, I've, I've, I've saved up a crap ton of points and drawn premium units here in Colorado that I'm never going to get the chance to hunt again, but I've changed my outlook on that. And I would rather find a, a, unit that I can draw once every three, two or three years and hunt it multiple times over the, over the years, then just hunt it that one time. Because just like what you're talking about, you go to a, you go to a great unit that you're, you don't know anything about. You didn't get the chance to really go up and, and spend, you know, the time 14 at 15, you know, 20 hours away and doing a lot of scouting that summer. Well, your, your first half of the hunt is just learning unless yeah. you luck into something. Right. Yeah. Or, or know someone who can yeah. give you the information from their hunt the year before two years, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. But it is, it is key to know. Yeah. I, if I go up to here and they're not there, I need to go to here and look, and then I need to go to here have that ABC plan. You know what I mean? And you, you, you really can't develop that if you're not, if you're not intimately familiar with the area. Yeah. The hunt doesn't start until you spotted a target animal. And Randy Ulmer taught me that 20 years ago. Um, I was getting into some tags. I was starting to build some points up for some great tags. And I called Randy one night on the phone and um, this one, I've just started. I got into competition archery about the time he was getting out. So I got to compete against him a few times, but when we would just stand around ATA show and stuff and talk, we had a mutual respect. He was kind of a guy emulated, looked up to wanted to be like, uh, but cause he just had such a great demeanor, both on the target course and in the mountains and got to talking to him. And he called one night, we were just chit chatting about this tag I had. And he said, treat every hunt going forward that you're just going scouting. Like, don't take your bow and go hunting every morning because you're going to you're going to set on rocks on a five, 10 day hunt waiting, hoping don't do that. Go scout. Pretend you're scouting the whole, you know, if you don't have time to scout before the hunt, go just scout and then don't even get serious about hunting until you located a target animal. So that is a huge key to the way that I approach Utah and the way I approached my elk hunting in Southern Colorado is when I would I would go to the same units. But if seasonally once one season to the next pressure can be different well i don't just go with my bow and my spotting scope and a day supplies and set on this rock and just plan to find a deer to go hunt man i started just blazing all over the whole rim i'd go all over the unit and and look for overlooked places and sometimes some of the best hunting i have found now like for years I was taking on my seminars and my writing, I was taking everybody into the back country. Well, now there's more people in the back country than there are mm-hmm. by the trailhead. And I have in the fat past few years, I have found better bucks really close to trailheads that are escaping that pressure of the back country. Right. So I would just, I would get out and just, and I don't overlook trailheads and I don't overlook the farthest peak in the back of the unit, but I will stay mobile until I spot something that trips my trigger and then go after it. And that that's been my approach to that. Hmm. Well, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, uh, there's a plug for Randy that I want to throw in right here. Um, Randy is the 
the back page columnist for Bow Hunter magazine. And I don't know if either of you have been reading his, his column is called the quest and he is at the end of a 10 part series of columns that he's written, written that is literally the best writing that I think has ever appeared in bow hunter magazine. He is like Randy is an outstanding writer. Not mm-hmm. only is he the mule deer King, like the best information that you've ever gotten in your career on how to be a really successful mule deer hunter is a lot of that's probably come from Randy. Mm -hmm. He is the undisputed King. If you get a chance, you you need to get a hold of like the last 10 issues of bow hunter magazine, start at, you know, part one of his series and read that it is. If you're Randy Olmer fan, anybody out there listening, (laughs) Mm-hmm. do yourself a favor you need to do it, it yeah, it's, buddy. it's absolutely outstanding um yeah. so you, you know back to my question about texas and some of the hunting that you're doing now and how that might help you to become a a better mule deer help you hone your mule deer skills you know one mm-hmm. of the things that i've always said is if you're a kid growing up out here in the west how long does it take you to get let's say 10 animals under your belt where you are, where you have a close encounter, you're having to make all of those in the heat of the moment decisions, reading body language of the animal and making it happen. How long does that take 10 years? If, if, if we're talking 10 mule deer, dude, unless you're it's 10 years, unless you're, you know, not killing one every single year, it could take you 20 years to get that Yeah, in a, in a state like, Texas or some of these states where you can kill, you know, multiple does every year. In, in my opinion, every one of those encounters makes you, that's what makes you a good bow hunter. I tell young guys all the time, dude, Hey, you need to go through that stage in your career where if it's Brown, it's down. And, and there's a lot, some people throw rocks at me, you know, you can't tell kids to be shooting two and a half year old whitetails. That's not exactly what I'm saying, dude. (laughs) You know, it's all relative to what you're doing on that piece of property. Mm -hmm. However, those kids need to be taken advantage of every opportunity they get to have an animal in front of them. And whether they're in a tree, whether they're in a blind, whether they're on the ground, just going through that process of getting an arrow released on an animal is huge, man. And a lot of the kids in states like Texas or Missouri, you know, where you can kill a bunch of animals, big game animals a year, man, it takes them two years to get the experience that that it takes a Western kid, you know, half their career to get. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm watching you. I know what those, those Texas deer in that part of Texas are like, they are spooky. Like they're on crack cocaine. Yeah. You know? Crazy, they're crazy, crazy, crazy deer. Yeah. And then, you know, the spot, spot and stock hog hunting that you've been doing, you mm-hmm. know, all of those things are things that help you hone your skills. I think. Oh yeah. That well, speaking of that, that's <laughs> you're talking about how many years does it take to get 10 kills? man, I killed more than 10 animals in October this year. So, so, and, and, and because I have, uh, you know, everybody has this vision of Texas as, 
I think a lot of people think of Texas as high fence, which is barely a percent of Texas as a high fence. And then you see uh, corn feeders. And if you have any, if you have any idea of game management, property management, habitat improvement management, feed stations, a lot of times are feed stations where you have to supplemental feed because there's nothing really for them to eat in Texas. A lot of, in East Texas, if you have corn, you're going to have hogs. So we feed a lot of supplemental um, protein feeds and stuff like that. And it's for fawning for the does have good healthy fawning and for bucks to put on good antler mass it helps with that right but Mm -hmm. we don't we're not high fence so we feed these bucks all summer and i don't think we've killed a buck on our two thousand acres that i hunt that we summered every deer we kill we kill during the rut that comes from somewhere else and it's not even near the caliber so our great bucks run off and get shot and then we shoot and whatever we can get come through our area during that's Mm -hmm. just the way the deer cycle through our spot so um I said all that to say I had to relearn Texas hunting when I came back. Now I absolutely specifically target age class deer. Um, mm-hmm. The buck, buck of my dreams. He's just an 18 and a half inch wide eight pointer that I killed last year named Ocho. I knew that deer for three years and I thought he was five and a half. The biologist said he was six and a half. And that deer means more to me than any other animal on planet earth I've ever killed. And coming from a mule deer guy, you'd think my biggest muley was or some mule deer, but it's not this, this eight point whitetail is the most meaningful animal I've ever taken with a bow. And, and it, it's because of the hours and hours. I had pictures for three years of this deer and I never once saw him in daylight on his feet until I shot him. And it was just, really? and when he walked yeah. in, I about lost it. Yeah, I, I did a podcast with Southern Outdoorsman uh, episode 323 last year. And that is a, that's a good podcast for guys in Southeast Texas wanting to learn, um, you know, how to hunt that stuff. I don't know if you're allowed to pr- pump up other podcasts on here, but that's a great <laughs> podcast. And I told the whole story. And because I hunt there, it's the same as hunting public land in Alabama or public land in Arkansas, the kind of land I hunt in Texas. Now it's leased land, but these things, they live in stuff that you don't think a rabbit could go into. And those deer, those big mature bucks are so dark bodied and it's because they don't get much sunlight on them. (laughs) They Mm, don't, they just don't move in daylight. They are 100% nocturnal. And if they do move in daylight, it's so hot in their growing season that they're not going to move more than 10, 12 yards. They're going to, they're going to be bedded by water. They're going to eat whatever forages around water. They just don't come out of these thickets. That's in those big old mature bucks in Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas. If you ever looked how pretty and dark those deer are, they don't get a lot of sunlight on them. They're like vampires. And then (laughs) ladies, ladies get them killed. Oh, Ocho, he stepped out and he came into the spot I was hunting and man, I about fell out of the tree. Couldn't even pull my bow back. (laughs) <laughs> and then he turned around to, to leave. And I, I, and because of, I took a really good, good trick shot through some stuff and I got an arrow in him and got him and, and he is super meaningful, but that's the only big mature buck I've killed since I've been back in Texas for 10 years. And I've killed, I've killed a buck every year. Um, and I've killed two really nice bucks under five years old that I targeted and hunted just because they were just the coolest bucks I could come up with. But this old Ocho, he's my favorite, but, uh, man, I got burnt out on setting on corn feeders, shooting does and hogs. So my, my remedy for that was I started spotting and stalking. I spot and stalk hogs with my compounds. Mm-hmm. And then I feel I finally at 52 years old, got my first trad kill this year with my Satori and I killed two does and those things. The first one was super lackluster. Like I expected the heavens to open Fred Bear <laughs> and Jim Doherty would come down 
and like give me my wings and my halo and tell me <laughs> welcome to the brotherhood of bow hunting i shot this yeah. doe and she ran over and fell down dead and i went well, I, that wasn't that hard at all. I, mean, I, just don't, I don't know what the big deal is. That don't mean no more to me than some of the ones I've shot with my compound. Yeah. But for some reason, the second one I got, she was ancient. And this is a big old doe. And she, I had rattled in two bucks that morning. And this was Halloween. No, it was the, it wasn't Halloween. It was the, it was, I think it was opening day of rifle season. And I was still uh-huh. hunting my recurve. And I was rattling in this spot called Bigfoot Hole. That's where I killed Ocho. And I rattled in two bucks and they come under me and they went on down through the slough. And then I heard another deer coming, grunting, mm-hmm. grunting. Yeah. Every step. And that limb pop. And it's a huge, for East Texas, it was a 120 pound doe. And our doe's average mature 80, 90 pounds. She was 120 pounds. And she was like the dominant matriarch doe of that little area that I hunted. And I knew her. I had pictures of her. I knew, I knew that big deer. And she came under me like a buck looking for a fight. And she got out there at 14 yards, looked straight up in the tree at me and dropped her head, turned. And I drew with my Satori. And I mean, absolutely perfect heart shot her. That one about knocked me out of the tree because I watched her run 35 <laughs> yards and flip over and I just went on me. That one meant a lot to me. For whatever reason, the first one didn't, it, the first one didn't trip my trigger, but the second one really, really did. So I went on to, I'm, I'm still, um, I'm still trying to get my first hog with tragic equipment. They're really tough to kill. And I haven't hit one good enough to put them down yet with it. I've only hit a couple, but I didn't get them, but I've got two whitetail does with it. And now um, I went to spot and stalking. And I, I average with a bow probably between 30 and 50 hogs a year with my Jeez. bow. And I don't know how many with a gun. I just, yes, I, you know, I put a lot of pictures on Instagram, but I don't put every pig. And unless it's over anymore, if, unless it's over like 150, 175 pounds, I don't even put pictures of them up. But I, I kill a bunch under <laughs> uh, under 100 pounds, you know. I did and, not realize that you were that you were killing that many. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah, you? yeah. We we have to. If you're not killing 60 percent of the hogs on your property annually, you're going backwards. And well, we kill. Uh, go ahead. Well, because a feral a feral hog once once they've lost the domestication, which is usually what six eight months something like that, depending on what study you read, you're going from two litters on a domestic to three litters for a feral. Mm-hmm. And they're dropping instead of eight piglets, they're dropping twelve to eighteen yeah. as a feral. Yeah, and picked up a whole nother litter in a year. Yeah, they'll drop ours. Will drop one sow. Will drop two litters of twelve to thirteen every six months. And if you're not controlling that, man, you're you're not winning the battle. And now now they compete for forage. They compete for the acorn crop, which is huge for us. So the browse on our place isn't that in, is is not what they compete for as much because the deer and the hogs eat a little bit different forage. The hogs do a lot of rooting, but and and the hog, you know, we don't have a lot of snakes anymore either. I mean, the copperheads and water moccasins are almost non-existent in our swamp. But they, the hogs just gobble them things up. They come up on a nest really? of water moccasins. They'll gobble them up like spaghetti. Oh yeah. So you, everything has its place. We used to have turkeys, you know, and turkeys we don't have now because hogs eat the nest, um, and so do fire ants and, and skunks and everything else. But you have to control everything on your land, and that's the thing mm-hmm. I'm loving about Texas is we've got to control the coons. I've gotten into running hounds with my friends and that is with the grandkids. 
you want to talk about getting some kills under your belt, experiencing some major crazy nights. Oh my gosh. Having to wade chest deep across a slough to go get this coon mm-hmm. with the kid. That is just, oh my gosh. I love coon hunting. Uh, some, one of Jerry, my goals, some Jerry Clower nights. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I'm, oh yeah. Oh, Clay Newcomb style, man. I mean, I love that stuff. And so, I'll, um, man, I'm all over the place here, but yeah. So we, we control all of, the invasive and competitive species on the land that we hunt. My, my family's had this lease for 30 years or plus now on it. And man, it's just a magical, magical place with a river that runs through it and lakes on it. And it's just a great place, but we manage it for quality of animal, not trophy quality. We don't use that word, but for quality, we try to shoot specific does that seem to matter. Um, bucks, we kill more coals than any trophy bucks. We shoot bucks with jacked up antlers and weird. Um, one of my best bucks I actually shot with a gun a few years ago is a six point that scored almost 130. Uh, he was oh, wow. a six or seven year old deer and he's just a beautiful old buck. I rattled up in a slough. I would took my gun to go shoot hogs and this doe come by my stand grunting three times and she brought three different bucks by that stand. I'm like, man, I wish I had my bow. I was really literally, it was like 85 degrees. I wasn't expecting to see a buck on his feet. I was going to shoot some hogs that evening. And this buck, this doe brought this buck by my stand and I jumped out of the slough, ran down there and rattled and he came back. I shot him and he's a big old acorn point on him. He's just a six point, but man, he was 126 inch six point, which is a really nice deer for my country. So we shoot, we try to shoot the right deer, meaning any, any deer that trips your triggers are right here. I don't right. yeah. care what, yeah. any, but for, we want to have age. you got to have genetics and age. If you want to shoot nice deer and we, sh- we shoot for that. But every year somebody goes, man, that one just tripped my trigger. And it got, might be a three and a half year old eight point. And, and a guy shot it. Okay. If that made you happy, you paid your money. You're happy. It, no one's going to be mad, but we get a lot of killing done. I mean, with the, with the critter control, the coyotes, the skunks, the coons, and then, um, the hogs. Yeah. We, we, a kid could get his 10 kills a year in pretty dang quick on my place. But, um, my goal now this spring is to spot and stalk, get a hog with my recurve. And I think with the help of my ultimate predator decoy, I can probably get that down pretty easy. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> um, we need to, we, we need to talk offline about, uh, about, about that a little bit more. I need to yeah. come down there and stalk a few with that thing too. Mm-hmm. Just, just for promotional pieces. I, yeah. I still haven't done that, but oh, yeah. um, anyhow, I, I'm a firm believer that each one of those little pieces of experience that you gain just makes you better, just makes you better. No matter what you're going after. Some of the best winter Western hunters that I've ever met are from South Georgia, <laughs> from Texas guys that have hunted, that have a ton under their belt regardless of what species it is and some of those more cagey species and cagey animals, harder ones to kill, you know, the, the turkeys and the deer in some of the Southern parts of the, of the country are just difficult animals to hunt. And man, you learn when to hold them and when to fold them, when to be patient, when to be, when to be aggressive, things like that. So my biggest question for you is like, do you consider yourself a better mule deer hunter? now than you were back in let's say 2012 when you were younger with fresher legs and you could tackle things a little bit better than you are now because you're you're same age as me or a little you you got me by a couple years and it's getting harder it's getting it's getting harder every year however do you think that those all that experience that you've amassed over the last 
10 years has helped you to become better now? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I have taken some really incredible bucks, um, mule deer bucks over that 10 years. I've been back in Texas going back, but it's and it, it's all around um, aggression and focus. So now I don't live there. And if I don't get them at the beginning of the season, you know, it's in Colorado, I had a four week season to uh-huh. high country bucks really had a two week season. Cause by the time the snow flies during the timber and they're just different animals by the, by the 20th of September, they're different animals, you know, once they hit that timber. So you had the first couple, three weeks. Well, now I have to pick and choose what state pick and choose what weapon pick and choose what tag. And then I go and I try to take, and I, I have a good job. I mean, I'm, I'm senior leadership. I have a lot of vacation time. But still, being away from my family, my home, and my job, I don't want to be ever be gone more than two weeks. And sometimes I take a whole two weeks and I go. But because of my focus and my preparation, I think I'm better now. And because once you get your mountain, and I don't care about being in shape and all that, being in shape absolutely helps any Western hunter. Period. I'm not in. 100%. I was in my best. I was in my best shape, and I mean, I got back in really great shape in 2014, 15. I've gotten as fat as I ever got in 2014, gotten the very best shape of my life in 2015, 16, 17, 18, and then slacked off on it. And you just get right back into bad habits. But I never let myself fully go back to where I was. But even in bad shape, even 20 pounds overweight, not cardio great, it only takes me two days. And I have my mm-hmm. mountain legs back under me and my mountain lungs back. And I might not out hike anybody, but I'll keep up. And I'll do right. my, And so being in shape, absolutely. Number one of the greatest assets to being a good Western hunter is being physically fit with a good cardio program and good legs, man. You gotta have good legs, good butt and, and good lungs, the rest of it, and a good back. Mm-hmm. And so stay on top of that. I would suggest that to anybody coming out. Cause you'll never, you'll never emulate in the hardest workout on planet earth. You can go, you can say, I'm going to work out the hardest. I'm going to work out until you know, I've, I've given all that my body can give in a workout situation is still mm-hmm. not going to match packing a bull elk off of a mountain. It'll never match it. And you just, just go, fact. you know, and so, um, it's a different type of pain shape, too. Yep. But just being smart, knowing when to hold them and when to fold them. And to go back to what you were talking about, I, had, I have a killer instinct and I have laser focus. And when I decide something needs to die, it typically dies and it all stems back from the very roots of my hunting. And I learned to hunt squirrels, East Texas. We call them cat squirrels or gray squirrels with an open sight, iron sight, 22, a single shot, 22. And I would head shoot them. I started doing that when I was probably about, well, I started with a 20 gauge when I was nine, except no eight or nine. I started with a single shot, 20 gauge. And then I got tired of picking pellets out of squirrels. We ate them all. And so I went to right hunting them with a 22 out of Marlin. I still got it. Got a scope on it now, but back then I shot iron sights. And you, you, if you want to challenge yourself, take an iron sight 22 single shot and go kill a limit of 10 squirrels with that 22 in East Texas, all with headshots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I did. And I got to where I'd just do it every time I went out. We had a lot of squirrels, but it was no, when you could see a squirrel cutting in a tree, if that squirrel can, if you can see that squirrel, that squirrel can see you. And all my uncles and my grandpa, they taught me how to get tree to tree, tree to tree, tree to tree until I was close enough that I could accurately shoot a cat squirrel on the top of a pin oak tree with a 22. That when I talk to guys all over the country and you, I've talked to some guys a few years ago, I was out in Meeker, Colorado hunting elk and they, and, uh, I, 
come by their camp and I had a limit of grouse with my bow and the guy saw him on my backpack. I had three grouse. And he said, where are you? And we were talking. He goes, you know, you got some twang to you. Where are you from? I said, Texas. He said, you grow up squirrel hunting? I said, yes, sir. He said, them the best hunters I ever met in my life on this mountain where East Texas and South Louisiana boys grew up squirrel hunting. They're just better woodsmen. Then you have to be a woodsman to kill those things. So I attribute a lot of my hunting success to being coming from that background, like you were talking about, Danny, from Georgia. Louisiana, Alabama, them Southern boys hunting squirrels with single shot rifles. Uh, it just makes you focus on your shooting and it focus on your stalking. And it just, it helps you be a better woodsman for sure. Yeah. Well, and everything that you were saying about the, the fitness, it, it, me and Evan were talking about this the other day, like it, it's a prerequisite. You've got to be in condition because the number one thing that being out of shape in the West does to you is steal your motivation. You can come out here as the most motivated mother effort that you've ever seen <laughs> and mm-hmm. and day two when you're crawling out of that sleeping bag for the first time all your motivation can be stolen from you instantly you, you know because it. you are so taxed from what you did just getting in there the day before you know you, you gotta and want it so bad you, you gotta do. want it so bad to even get up and go the next day you do. And, and so, I mean, that's an obvious, it's prerequisite, but I, I'm a firm believer that all of the experience that you're gaining, um, out there, just the more that you put under your belt, and I don't care which species it is, whether your goal is to become a better elk hunter, to become a better, uh, mule deer hunter, anything out West, wherever you happen to live, Taking advantage of every opportunity that you've got to have animals in front of you and to have to perform makes you better out here. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, for no, sure. no doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's first and foremost for Western hunting. Managers. You've got to be able to go because you don't. Yeah. It just you'll just be deflated and be like, I, I see the buck over there. I see the bull bugling that meadow. I I. I just don't think I can even get there. And if I do, how in the world am I going to get it out of here? You know? And, mm-hmm. and so, right. um, and you, I guess because I've survived it so many times, even when I'm not in great shape, I just kind of grind. Some guys just have that in them. They can just grind through it, you know? And, but when I was in great shape, it just saying it came so much easier. I yeah. hunted with those, some buddies that are from Utah and they're, they're younger than me. And they could tell it. They I hunted with them when I was in my worst shape. I went to the Ruby Wilderness and hunted um, muleys with them in 2014. And I was so embarrassed because I couldn't. We went 12 miles in on foot, mm-hmm. and by the time we got five miles in, they were already rummaging through my pack, sorting through my stuff, and everybody split my gear. Here's 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 the guru, Mark Smith, muley slayer, going with these young bucks, but they're carrying all my stuff, and I felt. I felt so deflated and so ah, just embarrassed and we got in there, but I stayed with it and I ended up being the first one to kill a buck. I killed a three point and uh, mm-hmm. just, just a nice buck. And I got him out the next year. I was in the best shape of my life. And when I hunted with them, uh, they noticed it and yeah. got, there'd be times I'd be ahead of them. And they're like, man, I think we liked you better when you're fatter. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next year I hunted with Corey again, we hunted elk. And I have a whole different mindset. Like I, I'm a mule deer guy and I love mule deer, but when I hunt elk, I'm a different animal. I'm a different person. I don't sit there and blind call. I don't, I, I run them down. 
I run until I see an elk and then the hunt starts. And Corey's like, who is this guy? You know, because I was in good shape. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. he'd be like, hey, you want me to call? No, don't call. Don't even let them know where we're at. The, the, the element of surprise, I want to go until I put my eyeballs on some. Then we'll determine if there's a bull we want to shoot in there and then we'll go kill it. And I said, otherwise, man, I just don't like giving up my location. And I think that comes from being a mule deer hunter. I did, you know, I never skyline myself. I don't like giving myself up. And mm-hmm. so I won't just blind call. I just run. And, and when I say run, I mean, I'm, I'm hoofing it. I'm, I'm gone looking for, looking for elk. And then when I see them, that's when I start hunting. But those boys had never seen that side of me. And especially Corey. And he's like, dude, you're not even the same human being man, that you were last year. And uh, I love that. I, I, I remember good feeling when you got name. into yeah. that. Yeah. I, I remember when you got into that and you were posting some Cameron Haynes esque sweaty moments from mm-hmm. the gym and stuff like that. But you worked your butt off that year. You did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. You did. Yeah. I did all that. Yeah. I got a lot of, I got a lot of teasing from folks over it, but um, I would post my, screenshots of the gym of my location at four in the morning. And that kind of, that was to keep me accountable. Yeah. And, and then I realized it was motivating people and it motivated you to call me and say, yeah, I do. I saw a picture of you. Like you lost 50 pounds. What'd you do? I yeah. get up and I put one foot in front of the other at four in the morning when I'm mm-hmm. 20 pounds overweight, I'm getting up when I wake up, <laughs> I'm eating what I want to eat when I feel like eating and I'm staying up all night. But when I was working out, I was up at 4 a.m. I was in bed sound asleep by 9 p.m. And I was putting good nutrients and good fuel in my body. And the number one thing back then is where I've changed now. I've gone back to eating food for comfort is I only looked at food as fuel. I did never look at one thing as that's delicious or not delicious. I looked at it for its content, its value to my body as a fuel, a high octane Mm. fuel. And when I ate fuel foods and I got up at four in the morning, it didn't matter if I was running or lifting or whatever, I was at my optimum. And I believe mm-hmm. that's just the simple key. Now, Evan's a beast. He's like, oh, I, dude. I, don't, I don't even want to talk about that. That's embarrassing for me. He's crazy good. But I'm, I'm like, wow, man. That, when I saw him in person after a couple of years there at the show, I just couldn't believe he was this little thread. He was a little beanie little. I know. Kid, <laughs> like I know. Archery shot. Now you're like full grown ass man with pets, <laughs> man. Dang. But uh, that's a whole nother level. You don't have to be that level to go kill an elk. But you dang sure want to be higher level than where I'm sitting in this chair in Texas today. Uh, yeah. And kudos to you guys that have that 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 uh, discipline, you know, that discipline to be. And let's, let's just face it, man. Cam Haynes, the godfather of all that. He's the one yes, that shed light on that. And uh, I, I he's been my friend for shoot. He edited my first article in 2000. So, uh, at Eastman. So we've been friends for 23 years. I'm still a fan. I get he's yeah. a girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a fanboy. I love the man. And what he's doing now with his podcast thing, that's just, yeah, dude, I'm just setting itch for the next one to come out. I just love it. I love what he has going on, but it, nobody motivates me like that guy can like it, it, nobody else can, but and I can get, I just go flip on something he's posted or done. And man, it just, I just feel like I got to get out of this chair, go run somewhere. <laughs> I got to yeah. go do something. So kudos to him. But, uh, I didn't want, I don't see how you have this conversation being team Hoyt. And we're sitting here talking about these things without name dropping Cam Haynes. You got to, but he, I think he inspires all of us in some way to be where we're at today. And, you know, uh, just kudos to him for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nobody outworks that guy. Like no. you, it's yeah. I don't care if you call him at 5am or 11pm. 
he's up and he's doing something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. He has, yeah. he, he definitely has a motor. It makes me tired. Just thinking about it. I get tired just watching it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Well, Mark, it's been great having you on here. We need to do it again. Hopefully after this next season, you're going to have some really good stories to tell about your, uh, your, your, your new spot that you're investigating this year. I, I anticipate seeing another big muley out of you coming this fall. Yes, um, how many States are you, are you hunting this year? For um, man, uh, I did well, really, I did really well at work last year and, mm-hmm. uh, bonus payout is in March, which is ironically application season. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my aspirations are everything. everything from Gila bulls to I'm putting in from Gila bulls to Henry mountain deer tags to on my limited entry stuff to I'm going to feel I'm, I'm not just going to apply for points in Utah. What I'm saying, I have 16 or 17 goat points for mountain goat. I'm applying for that. I got, uh, I think I have like, I don't know, 15 bison points. So I'm, I'm going to be applying for everything and not just points this year. So, man, I could have a really cool docket this year if I end up drawing some tags. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we need to have you back on here again. Talk about the season afterwards. Yeah. We appreciate your time. Um, You got anything, Evan? Man, I'm just glad to finally get you on here, buddy. Glad to be on. I've been looking forward to this one a long time, man. This is good. uh, It means a lot to me. It means a lot to me to be in the presence of the people I'm in right now and to proudly say I'm team Hoyt and been with Hoyt a long, long time and couldn't dream of being a bow hunter without it. And you know that Evan, and it's just my honor to be on here. Yep. And you know, and like Danny said, I mean, I do consider the three of us brothers, you know, every time that we're saying hi or saying goodbye, it's always by little bro or by big bro. And, and it's been that way since, I mean, I've met both of you guys in 2008 at Pellegrino's and, and, you know, going back to the, the mentor conversation, you know, whether it was elk on Danny or Mark, you, you know, kind of holding my hand on a lot of early mule deer stuff and, and Pellegrino just archery in general from the tech side of it. I had three of the best mentors in this industry when I got in as this... 23 year old green scrawny, out of college. Scrawny. <laughs> yeah. No, you're, but you were serious, man. You were a serious student. That's why it's easy to, it's easy to want to help a guy like you, Evan, because you're serious and you, you take things to heart. And man, you, um, not to pump your tires up too much, but I'm super proud of, man, from the day I met you to where you're at today and the things you've accomplished, your goals and hunting and in the industry, man, it's, it's commendable. But, but pretty cool. yeah pretty cool pretty darn cool well man thanks for coming on mark hope everybody enjoyed it we'll catch you on the next one